This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. This is a special edition of the Side Alpha Podcast, special for me at least, because we have two heavy hitters, if you will, from the National Fire Protection Association. Before we get into our discussion today, let's hear a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Side Alpha Podcast is sponsored by Homeland 6 Tactical Radio Straps. These custom radio straps feature extractor washable decontamination, superior comfort, and functionality. Learn more at Homeland 6, that's homelandsix.com. Joining us today is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Fire Protection Association, Jim Pauley, and Retiring Executive Secretary, Chief Russ Sanders. Jim concluded a 30-year career in the electrical and energy industry, where prior to joining the NFPA, he served as Senior Vice President of External Affairs and Government Relations for Schneider Electric. Mr. Pauley has served in a number of past leadership positions, including Chairman of the Board for the American National Standards Institute, that's ANSI, and currently serves as a Director for the Center for Public Safety Excellence. I happen to become acquainted with Jim as he took over the NFPA helm through my work with the Metro Chiefs, uh, the Metro Fire Chiefs section. Uh, Jim, I want to welcome you to the Side Alpha Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It is great to be here with you and your listeners. I appreciate that. Also joining us today is Chief Russ Sanders. Chief Sanders spent 27 years in the Louisville, Kentucky Fire Department, serving his last nine years as Chief of the Department. He joined the National Fire Protection Association in 1995 and has served as Executive Secretary of the Metro Chiefs ever since. Russ holds a bachelor's, two masters. Uh, he's a EFO graduate, a Harbor senior executive graduate, and more. Russ had the prestigious honor of being awarded the Mason Langford Fire Service Leadership Award by the Congressional Fire Services Institute for exemplary leadership in public safety. He also co-authored the first edition of Structural Firefighting Strategy and Tactics in the year 2000 and the second edition in 2008. Russ, I also thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. <clears throat> I uh, got to know both of these gentlemen uh, personally uh, over the past 10 years or so um, through some, uh, some relationships I'll talk about in a second. However, my NFPA relationship extends well beyond that, as most of you know, through Prince George's County, where uh, where I served for 30 years there. Um, that is home to uh, one of the greatest success stories, I believe, for agencies like NFPA, and that is in the mandatory residential sprinkler legislation uh, that could only be enacted by uh, having been backed by NFPA standards and research. Uh, I worked on the 20th anniversary report for that sprinkler legislation before leaving Prince George's County, and I can tell you the success was phenomenal uh, and couldn't have been possible without NFPA. Uh, in that period, over 700 fires were reported in sprinkler-protected residents. So that's over 700 fires in sprinkler-protected residents in those 20 years. In that period of time, not one fatality where there was a properly functioning sprinkler system. In the same period, there were 69 fire fatalities in unprotected homes. So that's pretty hard to debate. And, uh, you know, kudos to the NFPA and lots of other organizations that worked on uh, residential sprinkler legislation or not just legislation, but standards over the years. As I moved into the chief's office, I had the distinct honor of representing the fire service um, in two separate NFPA missions. Uh, first to Sao Paulo, Brazil and to Beijing, China. Those were two extraordinary times for women. I appreciate the NFPA giving me that opportunity uh, to serve on those missions. And I'll tell you, what that brought to mind uh, for me, Jim, and is really the first thing I'd like to ask is the international mission of the NFPA. Um, those two missions really opened my eyes uh, to what the NFPA does. So I've got two quick questions I'll put here together for you. And that is, you know, has the NFPA always had an international focus? And can you tell us a bit about that international presence? Yeah, so Mark, it, again, great to be here with your listeners, and it, it's actually a really uh, interesting question. I, I would describe NFPA's real international presence probably goes back about three decades or so, um, that it, it's always been a little bit before that, 
But I would say uh, with much more emphasis, probably going back about about three decades. And today, I'll sort of jump ahead. And if you looked at our vision statement, what it says is that our vision is to be the leading global advocate for the elimination of death, injury, property, and economic loss due to electrical hazards. So in today's NFPA, our, our vision statement really directly talks about that leading global advocate uh, piece of this. And a bit of that for us today, you mentioned China and Brazil as as depending on what the environment was going on at the time, those were two countries where the U.S. was quite focused. Uh, today, a lot of that international presence, we see the uh, Middle East uh, actually being a lot of focus. Some of that uh, from a lot of U.S. influence, for instance, in Kuwait, where there's a lot of U.S. influence and a lot of use of NFPA standards. Um, and then also in Latin America, um, you know, driven from really Mexico all the way down through parts of South America, where the use of NFPA standards has been around for decades, but we're doing a much more concentrated approach and effort in both of those areas now. And more importantly, we want to protect people and property around the globe from this thing that we call fire. And uh, we've got to do that in a in a selected sort of manner, because as resources allow us to, but the, the focus really is our globe. And I know for Russ, he can talk about some on the firefighting side specifically. He's been phenomenal internationally uh, in the work that he's done, and I know has some uh, some great um, opportunities that he can talk about on that international basis as well. So, Russ, is um, you know, you were a fire chief in, um, I'll say it, little old Louisville, Kentucky. And here <laughs> we are talking, uh, you know, talking international uh, fire protection standards. So, you know, how do you how do you shift from Louisville to the, the international stage? Well, I was uh, president of the Metro before I came to NFPA. So working as when I was chief in Louisville as president of the Metro, I had a lot of international connections then. And I was also on the board of directors at, at NFPA. So uh, my, one of my first assignments as being on the board of directors at NFPA was to work with the CTIF, which is the International Fire and Rescue Services. I know, Mark, you're familiar with it, and obviously Jim's been very involved with them as well. Uh, we've grown from there, and from the Metro perspective, Jim talked more about the NFPA, the bigger picture, and the more in a smaller perspective, the Metro is has MOUs, for example, with not only the CTF, but AFAC, which is Australia, Australia, Asia Fire Authorities Council, Canadian Association of Fire Chiefs, the Federation of European Union Fire Officers Association that represents 24 EU states in Norway, the Global Fire Service Leadership Alliance, the International, uh, I'm sorry, the Institute of Fire Engineers, the National Fire Chiefs Council of the UK, the South, a South African Emergency Services Institute, and many others. And Mark, and of course, as Mark knows, Jim's at all these meetings with us as well with the Metro. So you've met many of those people uh, as, at the Metro conferences. So NFPA's outreach to the international is through a lot of different avenues and one being the Metro. And we do have a, a wonderful working relationship with these organizations. And in fact, I was just working with Lorraine Carley, our vice president, and Jim on organizing the Urban Fire Farm this year, and, and many of these representatives will be in attendance there as well. So we have a great working relationship internationally with the fire service all over. And, and I was Go just going to say, Mark, I, I wanted to add something that I think your readers will find interesting is to, because people ask a lot of times, well, why why do you think NFPA is international? You what what makes that? And it's got one of the things when I came. Um, to lead NFPA. I knew there was an international presence, but I didn't realize that that the brand of NFPA had as much uh, emphasis as it did around the globe. And I'll tell you one of the reasons for that, and I think the, the folks, the fire service community in, in your audience can be proud of this fact because they're part of it. One of the reasons why we're so popular is because the standards and the things we do are up to date. And in so many places around the globe, they're using things that are 15 and 20 years out of date. NFPA standards, NFPA material is up to date. It's current. It's focused on current issues. And that's been one of the things that's really been leading the charge on this international presence is us being able to stay current. And the fire service has been a big part of that. Yeah. So do you and, and when I went on those two missions uh, with NFPA, that 
right there was something that struck me is the amount of uh, really disparate equipment and standards that some of those international departments were using, of not uh, of any fault of theirs, but just from a perspective of having an organization like NFPA to provide the guidance. They just didn't have it. So until the NFPA uh, made the presence known and, and was there to do that, uh, they were just operating on, on the best they had in front of them. Right. right. And, yeah. you know, it, as you're probably aware, we just finished NFPA 1700, which is the first standard. It's a guide, actually, that we've done on on firefighting tactics. And globally, people are looking at that saying, look, you, it's connecting research to firefighting tactics. And that's something that's been missing in so many parts of the globe. And we're we're seeing a lot of international interest in things like 1700, which uh, which I think is incredible. Yeah, that's great. Now, do you find those international partners and, you know, Russ, you've been all over the world with it and, and Jim, you as well. But do you find those international partners physically adopting the NFPA standards uh, or are they using them to create their own standard, create their own national uh, effort, if they're, if you will? It, it's a great question, uh, Mark. And I I tell you, my view has changed on this over the years uh, because I think we used to believe people needed to adopt these things for us to feel like we've made a difference. And I was in Singapore and the words they said to me still carry with me today. What they said is, Jim, we have our own codes and standards, but if we have to go solve a deep problem, we go to the NFPA standards to look. And so we're, I refer to us more as we're often the reference that people use, even if they've developed or, or or taken ours and developed their own codes and standards. So I focus a little less on adoption and much more on the use of the toolbox of things that we can offer for folks. And that that's a little more of the trend that I that that I'm seeing nowadays. Yeah. And my experience has been exactly the same uh, as what Jim just explained. Uh, our standards and codes and standards are used all over the world, no question about it. As far as adoptions, in most places like, you know, Germany has their own norms and the UK have, has some British standards. And so in many cases, they're not physically, they're not actually adopting ours, but they are using them to a great extent. I mean, everything from where you have multinational uh, uh, insurance companies requiring that a, uh, a facility be in compliance with, say, NFPA 13 or NFPA 72 to just departments, and I see this all over, especially, it seems to me the most used, which kind of surprised me, was in throughout Russia. And Russia, NFPA standards are routinely referred to, even our building code, built NFPA 5000. So they're used all over in a lot of different ways, but it is a little different than what we're used to in the United States, where they're typically adopted in, into law or into regulation. Yeah, and that uh, is an interesting dynamic. It's got to be an interesting dynamic when you're dealing with those different political influences and all of those different companies. Has has the NFPA had impact in any of those uh, big international incidents? And, you know, two come to mind for me. One's uh, Grenfell Tower and the other's Notre Dame. D has the NFPA had influence in those investigations or been able to assist those authorities as they work through both of those incidents? Yeah, Rush, you might want to answer that a bit from some of your contacts internationally that came back to us, and then I'll, I might speak a little more generally about it. Okay, thanks, Jim. Yes, uh, in both cases, NFPA in the Metro was very involved in using NFPA documents for guidance. I work very closely with uh, Roy Wilshire, who you know very well, Mark, as well as Peter Holland, another colleague that we have from the UK. Both uh, we I consult we consulted with them a number of times, talking about the importance of our codes and standards, how to properly apply them, comparing what they had to what we have here. Same thing with our colleagues in France, uh, Christophe Mignot, which with the uh, Department of the Interior in uh, France. I work closely with him on the Notre Dame for, fire. So yes, in both cases. Uh, our, our codes and standards were used to evaluate what went wrong, how could it have been a better outcome and so forth. And uh, so we find that, I find that I could give you, go on and on about the Mont Blanc tunnel, tunnel fire between France and Italy, the, the uh, channel fire that we had, a couple of channel fires. And in all, every one of these cases, they're referring back to NFPA codes and standards. No, that's pretty, pretty uh, phenomenal. And, you know, and as we 
and I say it's phenomenal because I don't think most people recognize the international reach of the NFPA. I think they, and maybe it's the name, Jim, maybe you need to change the name. I don't know, but uh, that's probably a soft spot somewhere. So, uh, but um, I don't think most people know how far reaching NFPA's international um, mission is. So it's good they're, they're hearing this and I'm sure they can go to uh, nfpa.org and, and read more about that international mission, right? Yeah, they, they can, Mark. And one thing I, I want to, in broadly, your question about like Grenfell, because I went over and spoke uh, in the UK after uh, that was over to to a bunch of the, the fire service related uh, groups came in to listen. And what we talked about there is this thing that we've developed called the NFPA Fire and Life Safety Ecosystem. And I would encourage your readers, if they haven't looked at it, or your listeners, if they haven't looked at it, to go to our website. I think it's at nfpa.org forward slash ecosystem. And what I talked to them about in the UK is it's sort of eight components that make up this ecosystem of safety. And they were able to point to the breakdowns in every one of those components that happened with Grenfell. And it became a way for them to talk about the holistic need for safety versus it was just a cladding issue or it was just a response issue or some of those things. So we're using that much more internationally. It's become very popular uh, domestically for a lot of fire departments. I've had people say, we've been trying to figure out how to verbalize this whole safety system. And this now helps us be able to do that, right? It puts it in a graphic, it puts it in a form. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's when, when I first spoke about it at one of our annual meetings, people translated it in the audience into six languages before I was done wow. that we had on the ecosystem. So it has truly global implications when you talk about safety. That's, that's, uh, it's pretty amazing actually. So the, you know, we talk about Grenfell and Notre Dame and I think, um, anecdotally, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask, could those fires happen here? Sure. <clears throat> Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah I, I was just going to. I think one of the things we talk about in the in the ecosystem, Mark, to go back to that is we we talk about where complacency is set in, or we talk about what, where people want to ignore one part of the system. You know, one of those cogs of of the ecosystem is is enforcement, right? And where people have taken away all of the dollars associated for enforcement, you know, you can have gaps begin to show up. And so while we might not have had a Grenfell, right? We had a ghost ship. Um, you know, that that occurred. So so absolutely we can be subjected to the same magnitude of fires if we let ourselves get complacent and and rest on our past successes, because we've had a lot of those. Right. We haven't had a triangle shirtwaist fire from 1910, you know, again, like we have. But but we can get back to that if we're not careful about this complacency piece. No, uh, absolutely. And I, I worry about that every time I hear a politician uh, complain about the cost of the fire service and uh, whether that's locally or globally. Uh, I, Jim, I echo 100 percent what you say there. If we're not careful, we're going to end up right where we were. History will repeat itself. So. So um, as we talk about the NFPA, you know, we've talked a little bit about that international mission. How about the overall uh, mission and, and code development. Uh, can we kind of talk through how, um, let's say how a code becomes law, basically. I recognize they're not law, but uh, when you talk about uh, how does a bill become law, how does a code become a code? It, yeah, so, um, you know, it, it it is foundational for us, Mark, as you said, our code process dates back to 1896 at our creation in NFPA 13, was our very first standard that that was created sort of in this idea of needing to standardize around some certain things. So one of the things to think about that people will often ask, they're used to the codes that we have in place and we update those every three, four or five years, right? So that's all part of the normal process. I think probably more interesting to your listeners is how do you decide on new stuff, right? To be able to do, how do you, how, how do we end up adding things? 1700 is a good example. Why did we do 1700? Where did it come from? Uh, that guide on on structural firefighting um, or, or to firefighting uh, tactics. And and Russ can really talk about this more in depth than I can because he was behind the research. But it was a great example of 
where research around firefighting tactics got to the point where it's like, we need to be able to explain this to people and put it into a form that they can use. And, and that birthed the idea of NFPA 1700. And so we'll get ideas from the outside. People submit new project requests for different standards um, that we'll evaluate and decide. Some of the ideas come from events. Um, it happened with a standard called NFPA 56, which was the power plant explosion that happened in Connecticut that had to do with how they were doing uh, cleaning using some gas processing. That explosion, um, you know, I'll, I'll get the number wrong. I think it killed six people, if I'm remembering correctly. And out of that became the need for a standard to address that specific practice. So sometimes they're out of things that we learn. Sometimes they're out of us looking ahead. Um, one of the standards projects that's going to start soon is on is on cannabis. And, and people are like, what are you doing a standard on cannabis? Well, the extraction process that goes on with cannabis has some highly volatile, flammable things involved in it. And we've had some horrific fires from, you know, where those have been processed. So it has led to the need for another view on the standard side. Wow. That's uh, it's interesting. It's definitely something I never would have thought about of having an NFPA standard on cannabis. But, hey, uh, we learned something new every day. So right now, I'm uh, as an example, as I, as I think about the process. So I'm engaged in an NFP review uh, up standards updates. So if the average chief or average firefighter is out there wants to get involved in uh, in that, how do they how do they get involved in the process? Russ, give them, give them the statement you make at almost every metro meeting or any international meeting you go to when you're talking to the fire service. I think it's a great, I think it's a great lecture that you give them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's Mark. It's a great question because we have an obligation. We in the fire service, at every level in the fire service, have an obligation to be involved in the NFPA process. Our career, how the safety of the firefighters on the scene, the safety of the public, everything we do in the fire service from our apparatus to our PPE to our strategy and tactics now, incident command, it's all through NFPA standards. So you're really, it's incumbent upon the fire service to be involved and anyone can be involved. I'm the, Jim and I are the only two on this call today that cannot be involved in, in NFPA process because we're staff. Anybody else with an interest in fire and life and electrical safety can be involved. There's no cost. It's easy to participate. And I can't tell you how many times I would go to a, a state, usually a state fire chief's uh, conference and be talking about the NFPA standards making process, code standards making process. And I would, first thing you get is somebody would raise their hand and say, well, you know, I don't like section so-and-so of NFPA 1500 or 1710 or whatever the standard was. And in every case, I turn around and say, so you've submitted public input and public comments on that then, right? Uh, no? <laughs> yeah. Well, then, you know, it's like if you don't vote, don't complain, because we, we're we not clanvoyant. We don't sit up at NFPA headquarters and figure out what the issues are. People who are dedicated to fire and life safety submit, take the time and the interest to submit their concerns into the process. And believe me, once it's submitted into the process, it's given very, very serious consideration and it works through that process. And in, end of the day, it's standardized in a format that will address the needs, not only the firefighters and fire safety, but to protect our citizens in the community. So I can't stress enough how important it is for every fire. You know, the IFF is a good example. They are really involved in our process as is the IFC, as the Metro Chiefs, a lot of these organizations, but you don't have to be from a big organization. You know, a firefighter sitting out there and comes back from a run and says, you know, this this was wrong or this should be changed. All they have to do is get online, submit that public input into the process or a comment, depending on where we are in the process, and it's going to get action. So, yes, absolutely. There's no, again, there's no cost. It's It's really... It's your professional obligation as a firefighter to be involved in the process. And Mark, I would just dovetail onto that to, to Russ's point. He mentioned online, and that's been a big shift for us that I, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that that's been the case. We, everywhere, regardless of where I travel, domestically or around the world, I tell people anybody, again, as Russ mentioned, except for us as staff, anybody can participate. And all you got to do, it's all on the website. 
It's all in process. You can see the document as it's being changed. If if you don't do the public input, but you want to know what the committee did, you can log on to that particular standard and you'll be able to see, here's the changes the committee's proposing. And if a firefighter sees that and goes, I can't believe they're doing that or they need to do this, they can submit a public comment right in that system online. So now that we're doing this all electronically, there's really no excuse for people to not be able to participate. Yeah. Uh, it used to be thought, I got to be on a committee uh, to, 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 you know, to participate. And that's, that's not the case anymore. And the fire service is so, so critical, not only in the standards related to the fire service, but in the building code and the life safety code and the electrical code, all of those things that we do, the fire service input is absolutely critical. Yeah, uh, no, and I think it's great. The online presence and just the recognition that uh, you both said it, you don't have to be a chief and you don't have to be on a committee. Uh, just go online, nfpa.org, and you'll be able to comment on any one of those standards that's in process or leave comments uh, for it there. Uh, some good stuff. Let's uh, take just a second to hear a brief moment for a word from our sponsor. Homeland 6 tactical radio straps are heavy duty, yet lightweight and 100% made in USA. These are the world's first custom radio straps made from military-grade nylon that's used in ballistic vests. Unlike traditional leather, they are also extractor washable for pathogens like COVID-19 and for carcinogen decon. These are making leather straps a thing of the past. Homeland 6 tactical radio straps are available in multiple colors with adjustable regular and extra large sizes, even with reflective or glow-in-the-dark patterns and custom text. New customers can receive a discount on their first order of tactical radio straps or accessories at Homeland 6. That's HomelandSix.com. We're back with Jim Pauley and Russ Sanders. And um, the next thing I want to talk just uh, real quick to Russ. So, um, Russ, from the perspective of Fire Chief in Louisville, Kentucky, to the Executive Secretary of the Metro Chiefs Section, how has the fire service changed since 1966? That's one part of the question. And and then in that 55-year career that you've had, what are the most significant advances you've seen as a result of the NFPA's work? Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, I can I can talk a lot about this. Well, I, <laughs> but I'll start by saying, you know, there used to be that old saying that 100 years of progress un, or tradition unimpeded by progress. Yeah. That, that, that is absolutely false. With the with the exception of the camaraderie that I think is there today and I hope will always be in the fire service, most everything has changed. Yeah. When we have evolved from what was mainly a firefighting force to an all-hazard service. In the mid-60s, we didn't have EMS. We would simply pull people out of burning buildings or collapsed buildings or accident scenes, put them in the back of a police paddy wagon and rush them off to the hospital. At most, we might have had basic first aid training. Today, fire-based EMS is leading this country and many other parts of the world in providing EMS services to our, to our victims on the street, to our community, to our firefighters. Almost every department now, certainly almost most all metro departments, if not every metro department, I'd be hard-pressed to name one that doesn't have a full complement of EMTs and, para, and paramedics. We did not have specialty teams like we have today, hazmat, high angle rescue, heavy urban rescue, water rescue teams. We just sort of jumped in, did what had worked in the past and hoped for the best. Today, we have highly trained and equipped teams to address these challenges and many others. What was primary, primarily a reactive service in the 60s and 70s, today is a proactive service, emphasizing fire prevention, cold enforcement, and most importantly, at least in my opinion, public education. In my early days, we measured success. And Mark, you, this might, you might not be old enough to relate to this, but when I first came in, we measured success by how many feet of ladders we raised and how much holes we laid, how many yeah. fires we responded to. Today, success is measured by how many fires we prevented through code enforcement and education. But let me tell you, it wasn't easy getting there. I'll share a story with you. When I was a chief in Louisville in the mid-80s through the mid-90s, I, and I was always on busy fire companies, very busy fire companies. I never worked in fire prevention, not a day. But I did know that we had some of the best equipped, best trained, well-staffed fire, fire, uh, fire companies in anywhere in the country, probably, 
and we were still carrying out dead bodies. And in fact, Louisville at one time had one of the highest fire death uh, per capita rates ratios in the, in the United States or fire deaths per capita in the United States. So it was something that we certainly weren't, wasn't proud about. And many times I was crawling through a building thinking there's got taken a beating and thinking there's got to be a better way. So when I did make chief, I went to every fire station on every shift and every bureau and I explained that we were going to change our mission or change our way of doing business, much like what Jim's doing at NFPA today, in fact. And, and I explained this to the political leadership, to the at civic meetings, anywhere where I could get in the door. And I pretty much said this, when we, ha when we have to enforce the code by forcing a business to unlock, to, you know, unlock the exits or remove uh, flammable products under their stairwells, or when we have to respond to a deadly home fire with no smoke alarm protection, it's clear that we failed. We failed to educate the public to the importance of fire prevention. Then when we ran out the door with our lights flashing and sirens sounding, we were just screaming to the entire public that we have once again failed in our mission to prevent needless death and destruction. Well, I made clear that public education and fire prevention was starting that day forward. It was no longer the job of the Fire Prevention Bureau. It was a job of every single member of the fire department. Some didn't agree to the point of a one day alone, Mark, I had 100 people leave the department, one single day. They told me they didn't come here to sit in high-rise buildings and hold old ladies' hands, and they didn't come here to sit and babysit kids in kindergarten. So, you know, they left. The result was, over that eight-year period, we reduced fire deaths by 50%. We used it. We prior to that, we were averaging losing seven children a day, a year. I'm sorry, a year. We went for several years over that eight-year period. We reduced fire deaths in Louisville by over 50%, wow. and we went from losing an average of seven children a year to having several years with no child, child fire deaths. And I got to tell you, no organization on the planet played a bigger role in accomplishing this change of mission, the success that we had in Louisville than NFPA. With every change I've mentioned, whether it's the fire prevention, the code enforcement, the public education, whether it's the hazmat teams, the rescue teams, every bit of that came from NFPA codes and standards and education programs. They led the way in either leading the way on it or standardizing what we had already done. And what I mean by that, Mark, is uh, NFPA 3000 is a good example. 1700 is another but, that Jim talked about, but 3000 is another example where we were doing these new things in the field, if you would, you know, with the rescue team, the, 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 the task force teams, the rescue teams, these type of things. And we, in, at an urban fire forum meeting, a metro meeting at NFPA headquarters, our president at the time, Otto DeRose, said, you know, we're all over the map with this. We've got 20 large chiefs of 20 large fire departments there, and we're all doing similar things, but not the same. And we had all types of different problems in communicating with law enforcement and so forth. So Otto submitted a recommendation to the Standards Council to develop a standard which ended up being NFPA 3000 was an active shooter hostile event responder program. And that was a huge success where NFPA's process standardized what were the best practices throughout the United States and actually from throughout the world. And it's probably the first time, at least in my knowledge, where law enforcement and fire really came together and worked hand in glove on some major changes. So you know, not only, you know, in many cases, like I say, it was NFPA leading the way with the standards, especially in the built environment issues. But in other cases, it was where NFP was there to say, where, where somebody took the time, in that case, Otto Droz, Chief Otto Droz, Seminole County, Florida now, and submitted that to the pro in the process, and the process took it from there. And, uh, and because, you know, because of that, we, we, we're safer, the firefighters are safer, and we're better able to pub uh, protect the public. And the last thing I'd mention in terms of what's changed since uh, the 60s when I came in is the data-driven de decision-making has brought a whole new level of professionalism to our industry. We have some really great minds out there teaching our fire service leaders today how to use data to tell their stories and how to make better decisions. Because as I mentioned in the past, a lot of times we went with what worked before and, you know, hey, it worked this time, let's try it again. So applying that data and that science to it has been one of the key things. And again, NFPA has been a leader there as well. Through our Fire Protection Research Foundation, we've 
the Metro is on probably 15 different projects for those. So as you can tell, I could go on and on to say the very least, it's been a rewarding and exciting 55 years. And I can tell you, it's been a true honor for me to be involved with the Metro Chiefs. And one of the highlights of my fire service career was the day I came on the staff at NFPA. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like uh, just a phenomenal period. And, you know, you mentioned something I want to talk about. I want to make sure I don't forget here is the uh, the NFPA Research Foundation. Um, can you talk to us about that? What do departments need to know and how can they get involved? Well, I'll, Jim, you want me to take this? Yeah, go 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 ahead, Russ. OK, well, I, you know, what happens when I get on a roll? You know, it's not good. But <laughs> <laughs> the Metro. Uh, works very closely with them. As I said, we've got so many projects going. We've got one that we're working on now with senior housing facilities, looking at how citizens and community contributed information can be captured, integrated, using data to make better and timely decisions. I mean, we've got the economic impact of the ASHRAE events. You know, the the goal is to establish a sustainable and quantification approach to measure the economic and emotional impacts of these female firefighter turnout gear, uh, Otto Droz again is working on one of our uh, projects on looking at uh, the eight key elements of the fire and life safety ecosystem that Jim talked about. And that's something, man, I can't emphasize that enough. That is really where it is today. We, Everybody listening to this program today needs to really take a look at that. Jim gave you the link to that. Uh, it's if We're looking at the, the progress in fire safety in the, United, in the United States and how to assess the drivers of that progress and identify holistic recommendations that we can pass on through that fire and safety ecosystem. Uh, fire and fire service gear cleaning, fire guidance and protective buildings, uh, it, it just goes on and on. But I, I think the most important thing I can say about it is, it this is a fantastic, these are fantastic resources that the NFPA Fire Protection, Protection Research Foundation has available. And when in Louisville, we were the first city in the United States to pass a proactive high-rise retrofit sprinkler ordinance. And I can tell you, if it hadn't been for the Research Foundation, it would have never happened because the the resources that I got from the Research Foundation back then, this would have been back in 1989 through 91, it was just phenomenal. I mean, this is great work out there that's free. So any, any firefighter listening, any fire chief, anybody at any level on any or beyond the fire service, certainly doesn't have to be firefighters, but NFP has such a wonderful research with this research foundation, I mean resource, I'm sorry, with the research foundation. So no matter what you're looking at, if you're thinking about an issue with fire doors or underground storage tanks or whatever it is, take a look at what's available through the research foundation because it's fantastic, phenomenal work and it can save you a whole lot of time. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. And uh, so, I mean, basically, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a it's an independent nonprofit that uh, is is there to support what's going on at the NFPA. It's not directly tied uh, to the NFPA, but it's an independent nonprofit organization, right? Yeah, Mark, it is, uh, it is its own 501c3. Yeah. Uh, sort of the symbiotic relationship between it and NFPA is that their staffing and so forth kind of passes through our systems, but it has its own board of trustees. I, I'm privileged to be able to, ser- to to serve as the chair of the board of trustees for the foundation, but it has its own board of trustees that look at their research plans. They have their their own budget. They have to, you know, they have to raise the money to be able to fund these projects, and it's done in various ways. NFPA also, in some cases, um, hires the research foundation to do research that we think is is important. We'll do that on behalf often of the code process. We'll have one of our committees that needs trying to understand something in particular, and we'll see whether or not a project with the Research Foundation can help inform that. So it is is it is it's uh, independent from NFPA, um, but but the way they do work is continuing to serve that that mission that we have as an NFPA, right? Loss, economic, property, life loss from fire, electrical, and those related hazards. Sure. All right, good stuff. Um, can we switch gears for a second and maybe talk about um, either a particular standard or group of standards that may have generated the most discussion or debate over the years? And I have a, a couple in mind, but I'll uh, defer to you all on that. I'm, you know, I'm sure there's some, uh, maybe good's not the right word, but there's some good stories here uh, to tell. 
Uh, but I'd just like to hear from you. Is there one standard or group of standards that generated the most discussion and debate over the years? I, I was just wondering if Russ and I spoke at the same time, if we would both say 1710. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, 1710 was on the top of my list. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you could go back and remember as well, 1500. The, yeah. Right. That was extremely controversial. If I'm not, uh, I think I'm correct in saying, Jim, that's the issue that upset the IEFF to a point early on where they pulled out of NFPA. Yeah. And then yeah. It, it, it was around uh, around those topics, um, you know, because there's a lot of there was a lot of emotion, right, in in both of those standards. And uh, I think I think I don't want to certainly wouldn't want to speak for for your fire chiefs that are in the audience, Mark. But I think 1500 is a good example of what started as controversy that people now look at as a really integral part of of a fire service and a fire department as the occupational safety and health that that can be around that. So I, I you know, what often starts as controversy turns into, um, you, you know, really blooming flowers over the long term. Uh, it's interesting for for 1710, it was before I came to NFPA, I was actually on NFPA Standards Council um, at the time for 1710. So I saw that process through the lens as being a volunteer that happened to serve on the Standards Council, and we had to, to adjudicate various issues uh, through that standard. But again, one that started out as controversy that I, I think, Russ, that you would agree has, has now really become mainstream. Oh, absolutely. And and I have to tell you, 1500 even, with it, I, it, it's embarrassing to admit this, but when I was on the street, a young firefighter back in, when 1500 was first being discussed, and one of the key issues was you must wear SCBA. I balked. All of us did on the company. We said, oh, we can't do that. We don't need SCBA. We can find. Well, we were ignorant. <laughs> Let's face it. It took somebody smarter than us to, to, to come up with 1500 with all the requirements in 1500. And as I said, at that particular time, that document, the controversy around that document alienated the IFF and NFPA. And as Jim said, a lot of times these things come back and really blossom. And you look at today that we have we've never had a stronger relationship with the IFF than we have today. And then a lot of it is you, you have those tough obstacles, you have those bumps in the road, but you really learn about each other through that pro through that process. And then you have the luxury of looking back and saying, my Lord, why was I opposed to that or why did we take this position or that? It's, you know, time, you, it makes you a lot smarter, let's put it like that. But no, yeah. I totally agree with that, Jim. I, I, I chuckle, Mark, because as I would go around to fire departments around the country or speak to fire service groups, one of the common threads was pe the firefighters would look at me and go, oh, you're the guy that won't let us ride on the tailboard anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. That, was, that was sort of their perception of, of NFPA at that time. And, and it's funny because I kept getting that so often. I had the staff dig into it. Uh, for me a bit. And the number of the number of injuries that were happening back in the old days from the tailboard, even from just stepping off the tailboard, ankle injuries and things that were occurring was was a really interesting thing to go look at. So, yeah, I was always accused of being the guy that kept him from riding on the tailboard. It's it's all your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but Russ, you know, I know it must have been hard to switch from, uh, you know, having a sponge in your mouth and feeding the horses hay. But uh, <laughs> as, as you uh as you were in Louisville and you transitioned to becoming part of NFPA, what was it that really drew you to NFPA? Was it that experience you had uh, of switching the organization from a, uh, a fire-focused or prevention-based uh, focus? Is that what drew you to NFPA? That was absolutely all, all of those things that I mentioned earlier uh, that I learned in my career coming up through my career, all those programs we implemented, Those it was all NFPA. And I had further had the luxury and the, the the honor to be sitting on the NFPA board of directors when I was the fire chief. So I had the opportunity to see first uh, up close and personal the NFPA process, the the NFPA, the dedication at NFPA, the I mean the employees at NFPA, that I the staff from the top to the bottom and everywhere in between, just intelligent, energized professionals. And and like I say, I, I found out. It saved me so much time and so much, and I learned so much by 
calling on the research foundation or lo working with NFPA's public education department. Uh, so many programs that NFPA offered. And I mean, I was, like I say, I felt blessed really to be a part of the NFPA and be on the board. And I went from there. There was an opportunity then while I was on the board, George Miller was the president and CEO at the time. And he offered me an opportunity to go on staff and I jumped on it and I've been there ever since. Yeah, and haven't looked back. That's that's uh, good stuff. Recently, uh, Russ, you announced, uh, and Jim, I know you said you didn't like to talk about this when we were off air, but I'm going to talk about it. Uh, recently, Russ, you announced your retirement uh, from NFPA, uh, from the Metro Chiefs section of the IFC and NFPA. Um, and also recently, they, uh, specifically the Metro Chiefs, named uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award in your honor. I want to read a short piece from Metro Chiefs President John Lane that was speaking of Russ for our listeners that might have missed this. So, so this is a quote. Metro Chiefs is an organization of chiefs from the largest fire organizations in the world. Russ has collaborated with authorities from North America to South America to Europe to Australia and spent every waking moment dedicated to the Metro Chiefs organization and our mission. So that quote stuck with me because I can tell you folks, uh, if you haven't been involved with Russ, I can absolutely relate to the every waking moment part. Um, you know, a lot of folks know that I get up at 3.30 a.m. every day, and I can tell you it is not unusual for Russ and I over the years to have been exchanging emails at 4 a.m. on any number of topics. It doesn't matter what it is, Russ is up and communicating, whether it's a text, a phone call, or an email. Uh, Rush, you've definitely been all in, and I, I couldn't think of a better way for Metro Chiefs to have recognized that effort. Uh, and knowing you, I'm sure that your humility asked the Chiefs to not do it, to not name that award after you. Uh, but it's done, so I want to ask you what that award means to you. Well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for those kind words. And I can tell you, they sprung it on me. I didn't know it in advance, <laughs> but yeah. I really cannot put into words how honored I am to have my Metro colleagues add my name to this prestigious award. The members of the Metro, including you, are tr truly like family to Marianne and me, and we'll always be indebted to our Metro family. I, uh, you know, like I say, I, I wish I could come up with something really articulate and Interesting, but the truth is, it's you know, I'm sitting here in my office right now looking at that award that they sent me, and it means the world to us. I can tell you that. Yeah, uh, and I appreciate it that uh, your your work on behalf of the fire service uh, has been phenomenal. And we appreciate that. So I know you're you know you're going to be leaving that at at the end of the year, uh, but I'm sure you're not going away. Um, so I'm asking you, Russ, what do you see the vision being? for the NFPA? Well, I'll tell you, I'm, for the most part, I really am going away. Now, I don't want to go away from this earth just yet, but <laughs> so I hope I'm around a while and I'll certainly be happy to lend a helping hand if needed anytime uh, when it comes to the NFPA or the Metro Chiefs. Sure. Uh, but for me personally, you know, I've been talking a lot about the family and, and the NFPA and the Metro Chiefs. We're, we really are a family. I mean, uh, we truly feel that way, even with our sponsors. And uh, of course, Jim and I were talking about this not long ago. We were talking about Paul Darley, and he's one of our many longtime sponsors, and you know well, yeah. uh, from your uh, participation in Metro. But I really want to spend more time with my biological family now. So so I, that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to doing. But as for NFPA, I, I'm, I couldn't be more sincere when I tell you that I I couldn't be more optimistic. As you know, these are very challenging times for NFPA, but we have the leadership and from the bottom to the top and at all spots in between, NFPA is blessed with creative, enthusiastic and brilliant staff members. And I'm 100% certain that in 10 years, we will all look back at what NFPA has accomplished and there'll only be one word to say and that's wow. And I'm a, I guarantee you, you can mark my words on that one. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. So I'll ask you now, Jim, um, to kind of get us almost to the end here. As we talk about the vision for the NFPA, where is the organization headed? And, you know, I'm, I want you to be speaking to fire chiefs here. Where is the organization headed and how can they help? 
So, Mark, as I go into that, I don't want to miss the opportunity to actually say something about Russ oh, there you uh, go. And, and, and his retirement. Um, I say I don't want to talk about it because, it, you know, uh, I could I could stand for Russ to be around for another 55 years doing this on behalf of NFPA because he's been phenomenal, um, not only from his time in the fire service, but as I, I talk about this time that that he's been with NFPA. And uh, he's just been an incredible ambassador uh, for what we've done and is so, so highly respected throughout the fire service, uh, highly respected by our staff. Um, but I've also told Russ, I do fully understand wanting to spend more time with uh, the family and with grandchildren and those kind of things. And, and so I have a lot of respect for his decision. I don't say I'm happy about it, but I have a lot of respect, respect for his decision that sure. uh, that he's going to retire. So. Uh, he has certainly been been a mainstay and not easy shoes to fill. Uh, but, you know, Russ, he's got a plan. Right. So, no so as we do transition uh, and so forth, he's he's actively uh, thinking about that and how we make sure we do a smooth transition. Now, to your question about for NFPA into the future and for your audience, um, one of the things when I got here is recognizing that you know, all of our world is changing rapidly and we're 125 years old this year. And one of the things I keep saying is that we have our huge success in the past is not necessarily the predictor for the future. There's a lot of things going on around us. And I describe as Mark that that people want to say, well, they're codes and standards or they supply research. What we really are is an information and knowledge organization. And one of our focus points is how do we best create ways to transfer that information and knowledge and to get it into people's hands. So you're going to see an organization that's much more digital. You're going to see an organization that um, is in finding information and being able to get to it is now on our top of mind. We, if you go to our website, we have thousands and thousands of pieces of good information and, and being able to find it is not so easy. So much more in this modern world that I see us moving to and being able to react more rapidly to the things that we have going on. And something your reader or your listeners might be interested in is something we've just rolled out called NFPA Link. And that's our new online digital platform where you can get to our codes and standards information today, but it's going to be beyond that tomorrow. And I would encourage your listeners to go to nfpa.org forward slash link Take a look at that platform. It's going to be the way that you access our information into the future. And I think people will be really excited about the way the platform works, what it can offer, how you can uh, create a team of people that are accessing info. And that's really where a lot of our focus is right now, is bringing us into to this decade and beyond from a technology perspective and from a way you get to our information perspective. Okay, great stuff. All right, one last question for each of you, and it's uh, uh, all I want is one number, and that is uh, for each of you, if there was one standard that's being worked on right now, what is the most important standard being worked on right now, Russ? Well, <clears throat> well, I, to me, it's 1700. Uh, I think that that's, and, and 3000 is another community risk reduction, but I'm, I'm sorry, um, 1300 community okay. risk reduction, but uh, 1700 to me uh, is so important because I'm, if, if we don't have, with that standard, we won't lose ground. And if without that standard, we would. We were going we're gonna to go back to what the old ways, the way we, we did it. It worked a couple of times. So I, I'm most excited about the, the 1700 standard, yes. Okay. Jim? Um, I'm going to, I could certainly go along with Russ and I agree with everything he said. I'm going to go in a bit of a different path and I'll explain why. And that's NFPA 855. Mm. And the reason for that is that's our standard on energy storage systems. And why do I pick that while I'm talking to a fire service audience? Because if you go to the event that we had occur in Arizona, uh, where we had an energy storage system, uh, fire and explosion occurred that took the lives of some firefighters um, that were there. It's, it's this edge of modern and new technology, and it's the reason, another reason, Mark, why we can't get complacent. We think we've, we've solved all of the problems with fire, and when I look at that, I tell people new things are coming up every day, and this energy storage systems piece for the first responders 
is a really good example of that. And and uh, it's why we spend time on that standard. How do we make those systems safe from a fire protection standpoint and help keep the fire service safe? Because they're the ones that have got to respond to those incidents. Yeah, and, and all they got to do is take a little bit of a drive uh, with thinking about solar, take a little bit of a drive to any place where there's a big field and they're quickly being gobbled up by solar uh, solar energy systems. And I think having that standard is going to be uh, uh, a big a big piece of that. So, uh, Jim, Russ, anything else to add? No, I just wanted to come back on video for a moment since we're closing and, and say thank you to you, make it a little more personal, and to Jim. Uh, I, I greatly appreciate the kind words Jim said, and I could tell you it's been an honor working for Jim, and Lorraine, I think, is listening in the same with her. I've been blessed at NFPA, I can tell you. I have Gary Keith and Don Bliss and Lorraine now, and under Jim's leadership and the two presidents before him, it's it's a Anyone who has an opportunity to go to NFPA, you better take it. It's a great place to be, and I really appreciate it. So I want to capture some uh, takeaways from our discussion today with the uh, CEO and president of NFPA, Jim Pauley, and uh, retiring Executive Secretary Russ Sanders. Not retiring to the end of the year, but uh, I want to capture a few of the takeaways from that discussion. Um, and one of them, we talked about the international focus of the NFPA and how you know a lot of firefighters don't really recognize the international status of NFPA. And in fact, uh, Jim indicated it's been well over 30 years that NFPA has had that global mission and that uh, the intent is to become the leading global advocate for uh, life safety. And we talked about the Metro Chiefs section of IFC and NFPA and how uh, they have multiple outreach uh, efforts. Uh, I myself am a member of the Metro Chiefs section. And, you know, while I know that we have a lot of those efforts. There's so much more going on than most chiefs understand. We talked about the international community using NFPA as a deep reference tool, which was interesting, that even if they have their own uh, standards or rules, that they're using NFPA as that deep reference tool. And then we went on to talk a little bit more about some of the international incidents and how uh, those the international fire audience uses the NFPA uh, as an international partner on some of those major incidents, and um, mostly to look at those incidents from a holistic response uh, to determine what uh, what they can hone from a response and uh, a recovery perspective. We talked about the eight components of NFPA and the life safety ecosystem. So that's an emerging topic for NFPA. You certainly go to nfpa.org. Uh, you'll be able to find that. Just, just frankly, type it into a Google search bar, the uh, eight components NFPA life safety ecosystem, and it'll take you right to it. Uh, we talked about Russ's experience for the past 55 years, having started with Louisville, uh, Kentucky Fire Department, and then coming up through uh, NFPA, uh, and how uh, at Louisville specifically, I wanted to do some takeaways from that. Uh, evolved from, uh, generally speaking, he made the observation of how we evolved from a firefighting force to an all-hazards service. How back when he started, pretty much firefighting was all we did and how now we have turned to an all-hazards service. Uh, he talked about how uh, fire-based EMS is leading the way across the country, not necessarily everywhere, but leading the way, generally speaking, across the country. Talked about how fire departments have switched from a reactive to proactive, and how uh, generally he led Louisville to, to switch from a fire-based system to a prevention-based system. And he talked about how over 100 people left the department when he made that switch, but that was a bold switch that needed to be made. Um, he, he made the focus of how uh, Louisville and others were great fire departments, but we were still pulling dead people out of buildings on a regular basis. And that every time uh, we responded to a fire, he began to look at that as a failure and began to tell the, uh, the, the politicians and many firefighters who didn't buy into that, that every time we had to go out the door, it was a representation of a failure and how we needed to switch that focus to prevention organization-wise and not just prevention office-wise. And a lot of fire departments need to learn that, that it's not just about a prevention office. And then finally, he talked about uh, data-driven decision-making, how that is leading the way in the fire service now. Uh, we talked a lot about the different codes that are out there and what's made, uh, uh, you know, for good uh, kitchen table discussion. Uh, NFPA 1700 being uh, the big one now on firefighting tactics. 
that's the newest standard challenging the fire service uh, to make a difference. We did talk about some others I'll mention in just a minute. Russ then talked when I asked, how can fire chiefs and fire departments get involved? Russ talked about the obligation to be involved. Not that I should be asking how to get involved, but he talked about how each and every one of us has the obligation to be involved. And that's a pretty strong statement. And it's uh, it was a great way to uh, to answer that. Um, we talked about 1710, 1500, uh, talked about the NFPA Research Foundation and how that is uh, on uh, working on behalf of the code process and other entities as needed uh, to conduct the research that needs to be done. Russ, then we talked about the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award that the Metro Chief section has named after Russ, and uh, he talked pretty passionately about the camaraderie family and focus on prevention that he has and that the Metro Chiefs section have. And then finally, we talked about uh, the NFPA vision, and uh, Jim talked about uh, NFPA being in its 125th year and how uh, the world certainly is changing rapidly, that uh, information and knowledge, that will be the focus that you should see coming out of the, uh, the NFPA in the future, is that it will be an organization of information and knowledge that will be more digital. And then he pointed to NFPA link, which was nfpa.org forward slash link, as the next uh, evolving effort for what NFPA will look like. I asked what was the current, uh, if there was one current code that uh, was uh, the most important code currently being walked on, I got three out of that. So I'm surprised I didn't get more, but I got three out of the two people. Uh, and that was NFPA 1700, the Guide for Structural Firefighting, NFPA 1300, uh, which was on community risk reduction, which is going to be near and dear to me as I try to build that in this system here. And then uh, Jim talked about NFPA 855 on energy storage systems. So I encourage our listeners to look all those up. That really is all we have time for today. Uh, we've been talking with NFPA CEO Jim Pauley and Metro Chiefs uh, Section Executive Secretary Russ Sanders. I want to thank you all for joining us today and thanks to our listeners for hanging out with us. This is Mark Bashore, executive editor for FireRescue1.com and FireChief.com. Have a great day. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.